Previously on CNA Newsroom. My whole life I felt a little different. I never really fit in and I never understood why. In January of 2016, a psychologist diagnosed Father Matthew with autism. All of a sudden, all these different things in my past life, which were difficult or which were, which I didn't understand, became understandable. Autism spectrum disorder manifests mostly in a different way of perceiving and interacting with the world. People with autism have a much higher chance of being atheist and a much lower chance of attending religious services on a weekly basis. I think there is a need in the church for ministry to autistics. Some of them have told me, no, actually, they don't go to mass because it's too difficult. You know, most masses today have amplified sound, have maybe incense, have bright lights in the church and things like that, that can be a challenge for autistics. We try to avoid all bright lighting and any of the fluorescent lights. We lowered the microphones a little. Sometimes we need to make things a little bit more clear, a little less complicated, a little bit more concrete. It's not different. I mean, it's still mass in every way and form. Um, we just adjust certain things for the mass to make it more accommodating for those who have sensory issues. We need to let people know the stigma is gone. A family in New Jersey was in the headlines last month because they said their son, who has autism, was not permitted to receive the Eucharist when other second graders were preparing for their first communion. This isn't an episode about the particulars of that family or that situation. But their story started a conversation about whether people with disabilities should receive the sacraments, and that got us wondering, what's fair? What makes sense? How does the church approach sacramental ministry to people with autism and other disabilities? We are entitled to the sacraments, right? Um, it is a right for us to receive the sacraments. And I can't remember the name of the document now, but the USCCB put it out. And, and it's very much worded to say, if there's doubt, defer to the needs of the person needing the sacrament. This is Jeff Shinstock. He leads the Office of Youth and Young Adult Ministry in the Diocese of Lincoln in Nebraska. And the document he's talking about, it's called Guidelines for the Celebration of the Sacraments with Persons with Disabilities. The document does defer to the needs of the person receiving the sacrament, particularly in the case of First Communion. It reads, quote, Cases of doubt should be resolved in favor of the right of the Catholic to receive the sacrament. The existence of a disability is not considered in and of itself as disqualifying a person from receiving Holy Communion. Jeff is intimately aware of these guidelines because his oldest daughter, Regina Maria, has severe autism. Jeff is a devout Catholic. He wanted his daughter Regina to receive First Communion. And in order to make that happen, Jeff had to navigate these guidelines with his parish and his diocese. Jeff said there were more practical concerns, like Regina's hypersensitivity to texture. Frankly, nobody wanted Regina to spit the Eucharist out of her mouth. So Regina practiced receiving with unconsecrated hosts. Then there were theological concerns. Jeff and his parish needed to ensure that Regina could tell the difference between bread and the Eucharist. 
I'm not sure most of us can actually tell you about the Eucharist, but Regina was able to tell, and we were able to work through that, that this is the body of Christ, um, and so she knows it's different. The special preparation paid off. It was one of the best days of my life on Regina's birthday when she received her first communion, and I want to say she was 12 or 13, probably. Should have had my wife on the podcast, she would tell me exactly, but... This week on the program, we're going to hear more from Jeff about his daughter, Regina Maria. He'll talk about the blessings and challenges that come from raising a child with severe disabilities and the role that the church has played in Regina's life. Then we'll take a closer look at how the church can approach sacramental preparation for people with disabilities. You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. My name is Kate Oliveira. I'm a producer on this show, and I'll be your host this week. Jeff and his wife, Sarah, got pregnant with Regina Maria in 2000, a few months after their wedding. I was excited, but a little secret we don't say too loud is uh, us husbands, we don't get to form the relationship in the same way during the pregnancy, right? And so Sarah's living it every day. She's feeling sometimes awful and sometimes great, but always just reminded constantly physically that, wow, I'm a mom now. Whereas, you know, I had to consciously think of it, but yeah, it was uh, an extremely exciting time. Jeff and Sarah didn't find out the gender of their baby ahead of time. And in all honesty, they both thought they were having a boy. She was born August 28th, 2001. Completely normal. Um, In that first moment, the doctor turned around to tell Sarah, Sarah, guess what? And I remember Sarah saying, what's wrong with my son? And she turned Regina around and said, it's a girl. That was the moment everything just, it it hit for me. It was my little girl right there in the flesh and everything in the world was right. The first couple months of Regina's life went without a hitch. Jeff and Sarah were living in Wichita at the time. Some friends of theirs had a daughter who was only a month or two older than Regina. And as Regina grew, Sarah started noticing differences between the two children. We were at their house a lot, and Sarah always noticed their daughter could do these crazy things like pick up Cheerios one at a time. And uh, Regina was more grab them by the fistful and throw or try and stuff as many as she could, including her fist into her mouth. As Regina grew, she developed other habits that gave Sarah pause. For one, Regina never spoke. She also enjoyed laying on her back on the floor and rocking back and forth, back and forth. And Sarah began to wonder if maybe Regina had a disability. I fought all that. I really did. Uh, Sarah was the one paying attention, and I was the one who thought it was being protected to say there's nothing wrong with my little girl and uh, nobody's going to put any labels on her. There's nothing wrong. The family moved to Atchison, and when Regina turned 18 months, Jeff agreed to invite some specialists into their home to observe Regina. Really just to get Sarah to, to realize there's nothing wrong with Regina. There was an occupational therapist and a physical therapist and a speech therapist and... 
Uh, gosh, I, I want to say there are about five people there. The therapist played with Regina. They observed Regina. Just as they were ready to leave, her first words were, no more monkeys jumping on the bed. Uh, and my jaw dropped and Sarah couldn't believe it. And um, you don't expect the first word to be a full sentence uh, at 18 months. But that's when, when the walls began to come down for me. And I realized, oh, what's really protective is to get her all the help that she needs. Jeff thought about his friend's child in Wichita. He thought about his and Sarah's second child, Thomas. Thomas developed at what I thought was just a staggering rate, uh, his ability to speak and to, to do different things with the use of his hands and uh, the way he played with toys. It should have been really obvious to me, but I was, I was fighting it as a dad. Regina wouldn't be formally diagnosed with autism until her fourth birthday. In the meantime, Jeff said the therapists were really helpful. They were very professional and they were good. And they tried to provide hope in the sense that this is something that we're going to be able to get through, uh, but also not overshoot the hope. I remember specifically they told us, you know, there's going to be a day when Regina is going to know as many as 100 words. We were convinced that we needed to have a big family because we were going to be there for Regina, but also we needed to provide for her a network of people that were always going to be there for her. They were still living in Atchison at the time and working at Benedictine College. Jeff said he found an immediate support system at the school and with the families of other children with disabilities. There's something that gives a peace that you can't really put your finger on when you're with people that understand. Um, you don't have to worry about all those times in the restaurant when you, you get the stairs because your kid looks completely normal, but she's, she's acting uh, abnormally at best and, you know, throwing things around and uh, what appears to be obstinate when, when that's not the case at all. Within a few years of Regina's diagnosis, the family packed up and moved to Lincoln, Nebraska, Sarah's hometown. At this point in our life, Regina was distant and learned at a, a much slower rate, but she was happy and always uh, giggly, if you will, and you had to bring her back into the reality of the moment, but there was a softness and a kindness about her that we, we had never considered would, would not be the case. Then Regina hit puberty. For a young lady, that's always a difficult time. But for a young lady who's not able to communicate in in-depth ways at all, um, either to you or receive from you what's going on, um, that was really, really hard. Regina experienced severe pain. She didn't understand what was happening, and she had no way to communicate her pain to her parents or her siblings. She started self-harming, hitting her head repeatedly to distract herself from the pain. That was a very difficult couple of years. Uh, we couldn't go anywhere because we couldn't get a babysitter who really understood and and we didn't really understand. Um, that, that was definitely the low point. Jeff said Regina learned violent behaviors during that time in her life. She learned to react in violent ways to pain. Jeff said these new habits have stuck with his daughter, even today. There's a violent time every day in our house. Uh, at dinner time, and we were always going to be the family that eats together, but 
we've come to see that, no, Regina is allowed to take her plate to her room and, and have quiet time. We're able to navigate it, and we understand triggers for her as a family, but she doesn't like the voice of small children, and mealtime, she's not able to really control herself in the way people that that don't have uh, her particular portion of special needs do. She doesn't want to be cruel, but she doesn't know how to contain it in those moments. Jeff said one of Regina's coping mechanisms is actually prayer. Ever since she was itty-bitty, whenever she would be upset about something, her calming measure and method has always been the Hail Mary. There have been many times I've held her in my arms on my, on my lap, whether she was, you know, six-year-old little Regina or even when she's 17-year-old Regina and will rock and will say the Hail Mary. And um, every night for I don't know how many years, she's fallen asleep listening to Mother Angelica pray the rosary on EWTN. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Recorded it back when that's what you used to have to do, but now she watches it on YouTube every night. And that's been a comfort for her, and I have no doubt that it's not just the repetitive, right? Um, there's a grace there. Uh, she's named after Our Lady, and I, I know she's present um, being with Regina at those times. It, it's definitely led us closer to our mother, and uh, we call on her a lot. I asked Jeff if having a child with severe autism has ever made it difficult for him to live out his Catholic faith. He told me that it did take some time for his family to adjust to a new parish. We live at St. Teresa's Parish in Lincoln, and when we first moved in here, it was sort of like when we'd go out to lunch and we were worried that people were looking all the time. If she's just sitting there, she looks like a normal kid uh, who's staring off into space. But if something triggers her, and you know, there was one time a baby yelled in church and Regina stepped out into the aisle on the right and pulled down her pants and ran towards the front. <laughs> um, I ran her down and, and got her covered up. And that that's the sort of thing you realize, oh, there's something going on here. And that was also one of the moments I realized, oh, I'm loved in my home and in my parish and everybody kind of understood. And uh, there was a time when she was just being belligerent and yelling, I love tacos, all through mass. And then she was punching me on the shoulder and slapping me in the back of the head. And uh, a good friend who lives just up the way, uh, down the block, I guess, and uh, has a, a child with special needs of his own, just put his hand on my shoulder. And um, it was one of the most reassuring moments I've ever had. Even still, Regina doesn't go to mass with the family every Sunday. Jeff is an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, and sometimes he will bring Regina communion at their home. It would be nice to worship the Lord uh, as a whole family, and that's not always possible. Jeff and his wife Sarah have spoken about confirmation for Regina. Their pastor and their bishop are open to it. Jeff told me it's really just a matter of it being the right time. We'd love to complete her baptism with confirmation and and really give her all the the fruits and gifts of the Holy Spirit to to go through both the joys and difficulties of, of what she's been handed. Overall, Jeff said he and his family have found a lot of support through his parish and their Catholic community. But that's not always the case for parents of children with special needs, particularly when it comes to sacramental preparation. Look, people, 
have real anxiety about approaching and they don't even know that it's their right for their child to receive and and we need to do a better job of communicating hey it's unique and we'll figure out a way through it but we want to help you and help you now and we want your child to have all the graces of the sacraments uh, as they go through this trouble because Jesus wants to walk with them and wants to be with them it changes things it it really does Usually Jesus isn't going to come in and say, Regina, you don't have autism anymore. That's not the sort of healing he goes about most of the time. Uh, But he is bringing about real peace. And those moments of peace for all of us are are really appreciated, I think. The reality is, is as a church, we're, we're called to the most vulnerable. We're called to the poor, the widow, the orphan, right? And... I think the most vulnerable people in the world are people like my Regina, who have this filter of not able to communicate in the same way, but experience all the human emotions and all the struggles and the joys. And the church needs to accompany people and families in that. Jeff said parents of children with disabilities also need to feel empowered to advocate for their children. In the end, we're the ones that are going to have to do it. We're the advocates for our children, and we're going to have to keep knocking and keep saying, hey, you know, my daughter can't be at Mass for anything more than an hour, and 40 minutes might be better, and sometimes we need to dim the lights. After the break, what happens when parents don't know how to advocate for their children with special needs, or parishes don't know how to best minister to these parishioners? We'll talk with the director of one organization trying to help. Stay with us. The coronavirus outbreak has spread worldwide, and one of the hardest hit countries has been Italy. With more than 24,000 coronavirus cases documented in Italy and a national mandatory quarantine, The normally bustling streets of Rome now feel like a ghost town. This is Hannah Brackhouse, Rome correspondent for Catholic News Agency. And I'm Courtney Mares. On next week's episode of CNA Newsroom, we'll tell you firsthand about what it's been like to report from a country on lockdown, where masses have been canceled and daily life has largely ground to a halt. Subscribe to CNA Newsroom right now on any podcast app. Just open the podcast app on your phone, type in CNA Newsroom, and hit subscribe. And now, back to the episode. There can be a lot of confusion about how to form people with disabilities for the sacraments. And people can sometimes feel like questions from pastors or catechists are designed to screen people out. But and that's not the goal or the current teaching of the church about this. Charlene Katra is executive director of the National Catholic Partnership on Disability, based in Washington. Since its founding in 1982, the NCPD has offered training and education to parish and diocesan staff ministering to Catholics with disabilities and their families. Not just intellectual or physical, also, you know, emotional and behavioral. We're a national resource in the Catholic Church help them, their loved ones, you know, really have a meaningful experience in the church. Charlene said many of the people they work with are volunteers and not formally trained educators, and very few are trained in special education. 
So, you know, they really need a lot of assistance and support from us. Some of the NCPD's resources and training are related to ongoing outreach, like the sensory-friendly masses we talked about in part one of this series. But Charlene said the bulk of her work is related to sacramental preparation. And if people come to church for nothing else, you know, we know they're going to come to bring their children or their loved ones to receive, be prepared and celebrate their sacraments, which is baptismal right, of course. I always say it should be joyful for everybody involved, especially the candidate, but also the catechist, the families, the priests. I mean, we should, you know everybody should have big smiles on their faces, even more so with this group. And usually that is the way it goes. Charlene actually has a degree in special education, but she worked for a number of years in a law office. She told me her background came in handy, even in that office. Attorneys would come into a conference room table and without thinking while they were deposing witnesses, they would be clicking ink pens. Now, that was just a, kind of an unconscious, just a habit. You, you know, you've probably done it yourself occasionally. So what I did at that time, years ago even, was put rubber bands on the table because we realized we were trying to record these depositions. So, you know, when you have, we were trying to record them and you have audio, that's problematic for the person behind the camera. So we'd put rubber bands on the table and they would then just naturally pick up, again, it was like giving a child a fidget. They would pick up that rubber band and just, be, you know, stretching a rubber band, but yet, and that was quiet and that worked. One day, Charlene got a call from the director of faith formation at her Houston-area parish. The director told Charlene a family had brought in their son, who had Down syndrome. The family asked if the parish could prepare their son for the sacraments. The director knew Charlene's background in special education and asked if Charlene would be interested in helping. Charlene agreed to it. So once I met him, I could quickly assess about what level, even though chronologically he was older, but academically he you know, needed to work at a much lower level, grade level. And so I started working with him, teaching him, and again, a kind of an adapted, modified fashion that fit his needs. And then, of course, as it will happen at a parish, when you start serving this community, I always say the word on the street gets around parent to parent, and then more families started bringing their children to our, our church at that time. So my class grew, it kind of blossomed to where I ended up with five or six students with disabilities in one class. Charlene taught that class for several years. She soon began to oversee all early childhood programming at her parish. One day, a colleague showed her a job posting from the Archdiocese of Houston. The Archdiocese was looking for someone to lead early childhood and disability ministry. So I went and applied and got the job and, and served there happily for almost 21 years until I came here three months ago. Charlene says she never would have thought to combine her Catholic faith and her training in special education. Yeah, it was just a God thing, truly, I tell you. I always said it was like peanut butter and chocolate going together. I was a cradle Catholic. I had a special ed degree. And I think it was just God because I don't think I would have had the wherewithal to put those two together, honestly. Today, she carries on many of the same practices she used in her parish classroom decades ago. The way I've said it is, you know, the faces may change. You know, when I would go to one parish to the next parish, to a deanery meetings or to whatever, the things you hear, you know, the, the people, the names, the faces are different. But the, the circumstances, the realities, the needs are very repetitive. Now, Charlene offers training and resources to others. If you don't have training, you're not going to understand how to help someone not get to the point of having a meltdown without that training. That's a very real challenge when you've got people that are bringing students, loved ones, um, especially if they're on the spectrum. 
Charlene said many times, even very simple changes can make all the difference for a person with a disability. Meaning maybe they need to wear a baseball cap because that fluorescent light is too bright for them to come into that classroom. Or, you know, maybe going into a church that's got 200 people, if you're dealing with depression or high anxieties, is very hard for you to go to mass. Okay, they have a sensory processing disorder. They like to chew on things. So we want to give them a special made rubber topper uh, made for chewing uh, to put on top of a pencil. So at least in a classroom, if they chew on that, it's more socially appropriate than them chewing on their clothing. (laughs) their shirt collar, their t-shirt collar, right? Because, you know, we have to do what we can and help educate people to do things that, again, respect the dignity of the person, number one. Give them a strategy that is, again, more socially acceptable so that they're not bullied. Something that, you know, lifelong they can take with them. You give someone and their family some of these ideas and strategies and resources and manipulatives or et cetera so that they can be successfully included. I mean, you can't meaningfully belong in a class if you can't, you know, if you can't maintain yourself in a class. But you give me a buddy to sit with me if I need someone to read to me if I can't read or to do something for me if I need assistance or just help me stay on task, you know, um, again, to help somebody successfully be included. When we have people with disabilities involved in the full life of the church, we all benefit from that. I often say God uses them to teach people about God. (laughs) Typically, in the Roman Catholic Church, before a child can receive First Communion, that child has to go to confession. With this community, the the baseline question is, can they discern between right and wrong? I know I prepared someone years ago for uh, a young girl who had Down syndrome. I even knew that she knew the difference between right and wrong. So sometimes you know. But other times, it's less clear. And in those situations, Charlene said the catechist should defer to the parents or guardians of the child, who know the child best. Once it has been determined the child can tell the difference between right and wrong, Charlene then considers whether the sacrament itself needs any modifications. Their confession might be in writing. They don't speak out loud. Maybe they're using picture cards to show a good choice or a bad choice. So you adapt and work accordingly to meet their needs. Sometimes a child with disabilities is not able to go to confession, but might otherwise be ready for the Eucharist. With First Communion, the Church says a person with disabilities should be able to discern the difference between the Eucharist and regular bread before receiving Communion. Charlene said this judgment is pretty subjective. Sometimes she will use resources like a picture of a host and a picture of a loaf of bread and ask the child to put one or the other on an image of Jesus. You know, just a really matching kind of game thing that tells us, okay, they get it. We're showing that this is Jesus, you know. Another way to test a child's understanding of the Eucharist is to look for signs of reverence. So if someone's not verbal, a couple things. We teach prayer hands for a way to say amen if they can't say amen like you and I can verbally or out loud. Charlene also recommends practicing with unconsecrated hosts in advance, like Jeff did with his daughter Regina. And it may be that the host is too large. Maybe they're just getting the smallest piece of a host, which is, you know, I always say, no less Jesus, right? The Sacrament of Confirmation can bring its own challenges for people with disabilities. I would say a couple things. One is, when you're preparing someone for confirmation, the bishop has to be able to sign a cross on their forehead with chrism, right? You can't be confirmed any other way. So that's a big deal for someone who doesn't like to be touched, right? 
Charlene said that she encourages parents to print a photo of the bishop or cardinal who will administer the chrism and begin showing that photo to their child regularly and very early on. Have pictures of them, talk about them, use their name, start educating them as early as possible about who this is. She also encourages parents to practice marking their child's forehead with baby oil and training their child to avert their eyes to the side while their forehead is being marked to try to help avoid undue anxiety. These are just little things, but they're big things for some of our folks, right? Charlene says she considers herself a sort of middleman between people with disabilities and God. She prepares children for the sacraments to the best of her ability, and ultimately... God's going to give them the grace God wants them to have, as long as we've done our part to prepare them, and then we let them we present them to, be, to celebrate that sacrament. And God will give them the grace He wants them to have, just like He did you and I when we received our sacraments, of course. You know, I would say a lot of what I do is just help lower everybody's frustration levels about, you know, do they know, do they not know? God knows. Do your job. God knows the rest. It's okay. You can find resources for sacramental preparation on NCPD's website, which I'll link in the show notes. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Jonah McKeown. Special thanks this week to all of our guests on this episode for talking with us. See you next week.